Thank you. Glad to be here this morning with you. Um, welcome. Welcome to Advent. My talk this morning is called Confessions um, of Hope, and I have lots of clicking to do, <laughs> even though it's a pretty simple PowerPoint over there. <clears throat> um, but I recognize that I needed to begin today with a series of confessions because I noticed a lot of resistance in me around stepping into Advent this week. Um, but I'm choosing to share that with you because I imagine some of it might resonate with you too. And I think there is value in naming our own discomfort or struggle or reluctance to be here together. Um, so you might remember that Peter Fitch was fond of reminding us that the Greek word for confess is the word homologio, logio, something like that, which means same say, or to say the same thing, to agree, admit, or acknowledge. You could think of it as matching what's within us with what's without us which I think aligns with what Walter was speaking about a couple of Sundays ago in his talk about taking your shadow to church. Um, a few side notes on confession, though. Confession in the church has often been used to invoke guilt and shame, but I don't think that's how it's meant to be. I think the kind of truth-telling that can actually, or I think this kind of truth-telling can actually be an antidote for shame. When it's done in safe and loving spaces, of course. Um, and confession is not always an admission of sin. We can confess our love, our joy, our hope, and our sorrow. Okay, so let's get started. I already said it. Confession number one for me is resistance. My resistance to, to embrace Advent this week prevented itself as confession number two, procrastination and avoidance. Even though I knew I needed to pay attention to welcoming Advent, because I had to talk about it, <laughs> and to really think about hope in particular, I kept putting it off. And when I finally paused to feel and name where my resistance was coming from, here's what I became aware of pretty quickly. Number three, performance pressure. I'm sorry to say it, but I noticed a kind of superficial performance pressure to give in to the idea that Christmas time at church and for pastors in, in particular is a really big deal, so we need to bring out the best, whatever that means. Now, I know that's not the point, and that it's not true unless we make it true. But it's also a real feeling, and I'm sure you know that feeling too. Whether it's performing Christmas well for family or friends or your community, or just meeting your own inner expectations, Christmas is a lot. Confession number four. The next thing I noticed was more like an internal flatness or numbness, or just weariness in general toward the whole thing. 
I get this way sometimes. I'm prone to melancholy, and it's easy for me to get into the mindset where I start to question if anything that we're doing matters at all. I was truly moved and encouraged this week to see how Rachel is countering that notion of helplessness with her Cultivating Peace project. If you didn't notice that, check out her Instagram page or ask her about it. Um, it gave me hope, actually. Um, but every year, really, as I enter the Christmas season, it often comes with a recognition, or you might call it a lament, of how our ways of celebrating Christmas can feel all wrong and out of tune, especially as we bear witness to the painful realities in the world today. Which, which brings me to confession number five. Reluctant to face and feel reality. I really noticed this one in myself. Advent calls our attention toward themes of hope, peace, joy, and love. And it's not that I don't value these things, of course I do, but to acknowledge our need for them in times like this is also to acknowledge our lack and that lack hurts. So, I really think confession is good for us. It was really good for me to say these things out loud. Not just because it's good to say the truth, but also because when I start listening to those voices that are real and honest expressions within me instead of ignoring them <clears throat> or pushing them down, it clears the air a little. And I notice other things too. Yesterday, I noticed that there is a light shining in the darkness of my own heart. And I just want to clarify that, or qualify it by saying that by darkness I don't mean bad. I don't mean that my heart is bad and there's a light. But that in the darkness there is a light. I also noticed a deep inner knowing that insists that hope and peace and joy and love are all possible. That they are real and transformative. And I think they hold the answers somehow. So, what if we're honest this season? Honest about the ways Advent feels uncomfortable and unbelievable, even. Honest about our own doubts, our complacency, our shadows. Honest about our hope and joy, our heartache and our fears. I think that kind of honesty would align with our theme, being human together. And it might just clear the air and open up a little room in us to welcome a savior. So, let's do this. <laughs> the gospel reading for the first Sunday of Advent is taken from Mark 13, 24 to 37. And I'm going to read it for context. This is an apocalyptic speech from Jesus. Apocalyptic meaning having to do with the revelation of things pertaining to the end. I found a study resource for the pas passage this week titled, Nothing Says Advent Like the End of the World. <laughs> so I was wondering if I could get um, just three volunteers to read the passage. It'll be up there. Renata, Janelle. 
10. Just one of the first people I saw. All right, we'll start. Jesus said, in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not, will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Should I keep going? <clears throat> then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lessons. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near and at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day, or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his, own, with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or at cockrow, or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. Thank you. Okay. <clears throat> First of all, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. My degree is in theology and culture, which kind of comes to the surface in every talk I do. Um, so we have Mark. <laughs> You'll get him on Christmas. Um, but when reading this passage, it's good to bear in mind that this is one of Jesus' last speeches to his followers, and there seems to be an urgent attempt to prepare them to carry on in the face of suffering without him. So the passage is contextual. We know this. It is said to specific people, in a specific place at a specific time. People who are familiar with the poetic style of Jew Jewish apocalyptic text and the imagery used within it. This is actually one of the softer apocalyptic passages, but it's still good to remember that it made much more sense to the people it was spoken to. So, to his followers, near the end of his life, Jesus speaks of the second coming saying no one knows the day or the hour, not even the sun. And yet that statement didn't stop us all from trying to figure it out. <laughs> and it didn't stop them either. <laughs> Mark quotes Jesus saying, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. 
But by the time Mark is written, already more than one generation has passed since Jesus' life. So we already know it's not meant literally. At this point in history, it's believed that the temple had been destroyed for the second time already, and fairly recently. So it is safe to imagine that Mark's gospel is directed to a people living with devastation, to a people witnessing the end of the world as they know it. And Jesus has urged them to keep watch for him, to stay awake. Now, I believe in understanding the context and that the context matters. And I also believe tenderly and mysteriously in the heart of this message transcending time to speak to us today. And so I wonder if we could pause here together and let the passage speak a little. We do this upstairs regularly, and I always think that it's quite possible, I like to imagine that it's quite possible that the words that are shared are also the words of the Lord every once in a while. So, <clears throat> I just open it up to ask what gets stirred up for you as you see these words today? And is there anything you want to share? supposed to keep watch, but we also need to be acting. And we need to be doing things so that people feel Christ's love again. And we can only do that by showing love. You cannot conquer hate with more hate. You can only conquer it with love. And that's kind of what I get out of. celebration in Bethlehem mm -hmm. due to what's going on. I encourage you to look for Pastor Munther Isaac online and read some of the stuff he's writing. He's a Lutheran Palestinian Christian pastor, theologian um, and the, uh, every two years they have a conference called Christ at the Checkpoint meaning Christ is there at the checkpoint. How do we think about Christ in occupied Palestine today? And uh, it's quite stunning, uh, the mirror he puts in front of the Western Church with firmly, but kindness and in truth, you know, but also with urgency. So I don't know if this is in context, but that's what I've been thinking of because for them, it's the end of the world. They are being completely swept off the West Bank and Gaza is probably 60% of all the buildings are to the ground. 
there are over 20,000 deaths, about seven, 8,000 people under the rubbles and stuff. And, and he said something because somebody asked, where is God in all this? And he said, God is in the rubble. So, I don't, I can't even fathom the kind of faith these people have. This is the first Christian community in history stems from that place and here they are today again teaching us to love and no vengeance or revenge or hatred or nothing this week I read um, from the book by Gabor Mate that he believes he, he understands society as like way bigger than any single human that society tends to uh, hypnotize us all into staying in the trajectory in which it's headed and the whole language and idea of apocalyptic is about waking up out of that trance so that that's not inevitable so that's the thing I find myself hearing. Thank you. 
The question is, why start Advent here, speaking of the end? Um, and the Reverend Dr. Mona West writes this. Advent is a threshold. It holds the end and the beginning in creative tension. I love this imagery of creative tension because it makes me think that anything is possible. At the start of Advent, we're asked to look toward the second coming in anticipation. As we look back, reflecting, remembering, and reliving the first coming and the arrival of a vulnerable baby born in Palestine. And the world should could use the second coming right now. Don't you think? And Advent tells us to watch for it, to hope for it, to work for it, and to welcome it again and again. Here's what Richard Rohr says about the second coming. Whenever the material and the spiritual coincide, there is the Christ. Jesus fully accepted that human, that human divine identity and walked it into history. Henceforth, the Christ comes again whenever we can see the spiritual and the material coexisting in any moment, in any event, and in any person. All matter reveals spirit and the spirit needs matter to show itself. I believe the second coming of Christ happens whenever and wherever we allow this to be utterly true for us. So this week, I was tempted to slumber, to stay asleep, to tune out the darkness. I was reluctant to feel deeply and honestly the woundedness of the world as it is. There are devastating wars in Gaza and Ukraine and civil wars too. Many of us dwell in safety and yet violence, pain and suffering is near and we know it. I was reluctant to face the reality that this December seems darker than the last one. Isaiah's plea, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, feels appropriate. And maybe it offers direction, too. I'm usually not inclined to focus on the second coming of Christ, to be honest. Except that really I am. Another confession. I actually believe in it, most of the time. So, to end our service, um, I thought we could practice watching and waiting for Christ together, both within and without us, as we listen to a song by the Porter's Gate. Um, I think we can even watch and wait with our eyes closed if we want. <laughs> um, and I'll just offer a tool that Naomi reminded me of last week to connect us to our bodies. You don't have to use this, but it could be useful uh, to self-soothe or regulate, which is just to place one hand on your heart and one hand on your stomach and to breathe and to feel your breath.
that through the whole song even. So we'll listen to it together.
I was doing that. <laughs> uh, well, this is the beginning of the Advent season, and may God go with you in whatever you do this week. See you next week. Next week is second breakfast. A reminder, we'll be learning about peace, thinking about it together. Thank you.